This morning we will read the 26th chapter of Genesis. So let us stand for the reading of the Word of God. Genesis 26. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your seed I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and will give your seed all these lands. And by your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac lived in Gerar. When the men of the place Asked about his wife, he said, She's my sister. For he was afraid to say, My wife, thinking the men of the place might kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is beautiful. And it came about when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebekah. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, certainly she's your wife. How then did you say she's my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I said, Lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, What is this you've done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech charged all the people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. For he had possessions of flocks and herds and a great household, so that the Philistines envied him. Now all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father, the Philistines stopped up by filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you're too powerful for us. And Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Then Isaac dug again the wells of water which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham, and he gave them the same names which his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, The water is ours. So he named the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well. They quarreled over it too. So he named it Sitna. And he moved away from there and dug another well. And 
They did not quarrel over it, so he named it Rehoboth. For he said, At last the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Then he went up from there to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your seed for the sake of my servant Abraham. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with his advisor Ahuzath and Phicol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, For there now, let there now be an oath between us, even between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have not done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. Then he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. And in the morning they arose early and exchanged oaths. Then Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. Now it came about on the same day that Isaac's servants came in and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, We have found water. So he called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. And when Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Beri the Hittite, and Bezamath, the daughter of Elam the Hittite, and they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Once again, we come across some great stories in this 26th chapter of Genesis. In fact, we see some very interesting illustrations of the central truths of the gospel, which are, among others, uh, that the blessings of God's covenant and the promises of God's covenant come true only by grace through faith and not by human scheming or effort. That every time a human being tries to do something on his own, with his own effort, his own merit, he's going to fail at receiving the promises of God. That is just as clear in this passage as it is in the book of Galatians, in the book of Romans. That salvation and all of its blessings are received by grace alone, through faith alone, and not by the works of the law and not through human effort. But this whole Toledoth, this whole section on Isaac and Jacob uh, has a major theme that comes out in every story. And that is that the blessings of the covenant are distributed by a sovereign God and not by the decisions of mere man. Man does not determine who gets what. Salvation is not determined by human decisions and human efforts. It's God and God alone in his absolute sovereignty determines who's going to receive salvation 
and who is not going to receive salvation. And you see that from the very start with the birth of these twins, Jacob and Esau. Now let's look at some of these uh, stories because they are fascinating. And once again, God is testing Isaac's faith, just like he taught his father Abraham. Remember, Abraham went through a series of tests, not to tempt him to sin, but to tempt him to believe, to uh, uh, strengthen his faith, and to cause him to mature in his faith, and to trust God and love God more than any of the promises that he made. And now he's putting Isaac through it. And Isaac's going to have to face some very similar tests that his father experienced, for instance. You remember Abraham was tested with reference to Abimelech. This a Philistine king in Gerar to see whether he would be faithful or whether he would become a coward and give in to the intimidations and the threats of Abimelech. And now Isaac's being tempted by a man of the same name in the same place whose general's name is the same. You think you get the hint, don't you? And, uh, and the temptation is the same. Just like Sarah was a beautiful woman, so Rebecca is a beautiful woman. And so there's a famine in the land, just like there was in the days of Abraham. There was a lot of famines in those part of that part of the world, and those famines were serious, dangerous things. And God is testing Isaac with a famine to see if he would uh, stay in the land of milk and honey and the land of promise and the covenant land, no matter how severe the famine, that he would trust God to take care of him. And, of course, like his daddy, fear wins out. That he goes to another land where he thinks there's, wants to go to Egypt, actually, where he thinks there's not going to be a famine and where it won't be as dangerous, and there'll be more food to eat. So once again, this man fails in his faith. He is a man of faith. He is a true believer, but it's not a perfect faith. And so we learn right off the bat that faith makes a man a hero. Unbelief makes him a coward. So Isaac told everybody that Rebekah was his sister, not his wife. He was willing to put her life and well-being at risk rather than his own. And so that's the story. And God tells him, Isaac, do not go down to Egypt. Don't leave the promised land. Trust me. That's all I want you to do is trust and obey. That's it. I'm going to take care of you. You're not going to have much food in the land of uh, Canaan, but I'll be there with you. You have me. What else you want? So you might have a famine. There might be less food than normal, but my presence will be with you. 
and I will take care of you, and I will provide for you. Now, just believe that, Isaac. And don't go off to Egypt or to some other country. I'll establish the oath I made to your, to your daddy. Just believe that I will. I swore to him I would give him this land, and I would fill it with a seed more numerous than the stars of the sky, and that seed would bless every family on the face of the earth. Just believe me. Trust me that I am your God, that I will be with you, and that my word is true. But Isaac's faith failed. So God reaffirmed the promise that he made to Abraham, to Isaac in verse 4. He said, and I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, and I will give your descendants all these lands. By your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. You can't believe me, Isaac? And I'm going to do all this for you with absolute certainty, not because your faith is perfect, but because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge and commandments and my statutes and my laws. Abraham was faithful to me. Abraham proved his faith by obedience to my law and everything I commanded him to do. And that's what I ask of you, uh, Isaac. I ask you to believe my word and show me that you're going to believe my word, however hard it is to believe it, by obeying everything I tell you to do. So in verse 6, Isaac lived in Gerar. Didn't go to Egypt, but he moved to Gerar. And the men of that place, verse 7, ask about his beautiful wife. Oh, she's my sister. She's not my wife. He was afraid lest if they found out he, she was his wife, they would kill him because she was beautiful and they wanted her. Verse 8, and it came about when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebekah. And he knew she wasn't his sister. I like the way the King James puts it. Do you have the King James? Abimelech was looking out the window and saw Isaac sporting with his wife. So they were loving each other like only a man and his wife would love each other. And so Abimelech knew at that point in time that this woman is not his wife, his sister. She is his wife. So in verse 9, Abimelech called Isaac on the carpet. Why did you tell me she was your sister? Why did you get the word out? He was afraid, I, he said, I, I was afraid I might die on account of her. Somebody might want her and kill me to get her. And Abimelech said, what in the world is this you've done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. What if somebody did fall in love with her or want her? or lust for her. 
thinking she really was your sister. And then they lay with her. They commit adultery with her. Then God would kill all of us for messing with your wife. Abimelech. Now remember Abimelech's a pagan. But Abimelech has a better conscience than most Americans. He says, he passes a law in his town. He says to all the people in his town, he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. So this pagan understood that adultery was a capital crime. Knew that if you slept with a married person, you should be put to death. Something Americans forgot a long time ago. Verse 12. Now Isaac sowed in the land. He didn't go all the way to Egypt. God kept him from going to Egypt. So he stayed there in Gerar. And uh, notice what it says. Now Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. One year. A hundred percent profit in everything he invested his time and energy in. And the Lord blessed him. Now, to me, that is one of the greatest statements of God's undeserved grace to be found anywhere in the Scriptures. Isaac had just proved himself to be a coward, put his wife at risk, to save his own hide, lied about his wife, and God blessed him. <laughs> and God caused him to have a 100% profit. Sheer, unmerited, undeserved grace. Why did God love this guy? Why did he make God make him the son, the son of promise? It was not because there was anything good in him. Because it is the decision of the sovereign God to distribute the blessings of salvation as he will. So here's Isaac, afraid to stay in the promised land, lied about his wife, and God causes him to make a fortune and blesses him. And notice what happened as a result of God blessing him in verse 13. And the man became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. Three times. God sovereignly blessed Isaac by making him rich so the more he invested his energy and his time and his foresight, the richer he would get until he became very, very wealthy. 
for he had possessions of flocks and herds and a great household. Uh, what is what is wealth? What is what are riches? is the result of God's blessing on your hard work, thrift, and foresight. Wealth is the result of God's blessing upon your hard work, thrift, and foresight. You have to work, you have to save your money, you have to plan for your future, you can't be lazy, but ultimately it's the blessing of God that causes you to profit. Now this is a very important passage of scripture because you have two kinds of people alive today that don't believe it. You have the fundamentalist who thinks that wealth is a four-letter word or that profit is a four-letter word. That people ought not to be concerned with making money. They may, they're not to in, in enjoy having a profit. That uh, they should not make any more money than other people around them make. Because profit, wealth, those are worldly things. Those are things that are simply distractions from your spiritual responsibilities in this life. It's the way a fundamentalist thinks. On the other hand, you've got a leftist, cultural Marxist, that believes wealth is a sign of oppression. If you're wealthy, you're oppressing somebody. The only way you can be wealthy is uh, by keeping somebody else from being wealthy. So wealth is not a good thing. It's a result of oppression or it's a result of loving this world more than you love the living God. Whereas the Bible says, God blessed Isaac, and in less than a year, he had 100% profit and became rich and very rich and extremely rich. How can somebody be rich, richer, and richest and still be spiritual? Here it is. It's a result of God's gracious blessing upon his hard work and foresight. Foresight. And his planning for the future. Wealth is not an evil thing. Wealth is the blessing of God upon our faithfulness to him. It presupposes faith in Christ. It presupposes faithfulness to him. There are many times in which God blesses faith and faithfulness with wealth. Not always. 
Sometimes wealth is a curse. Sometimes he gives wealth to a man to burden him down, to break him. But wealth in and of itself and riches in and of themselves are not evil things. It's not that wealth is the root of all evil or money is the root of all evil. It is that the love of money is the root of all evil. Uh, that if you love money more than you love the living God, so that you spend all your money on doing things that you want to do, and you don't spend it in any way that God would have you go, that, that's when it becomes evil. The love of wealth is the root of all evil, but not wealth itself. I want us to look at a couple passages, two in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament, that show us just where what wealth is and the part wealth plays in the life of the Christian. I want you to keep your finger there in Genesis, but turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. And let's read some verses. This is a great chapter. Start with verse 1. All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you be hungry and led, fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. That is, man lives by every part of God's providence in your life. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your feet swell those 40 years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you, just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you shall eat food without scarcity, in which you shall not lack anything, a land which stones, whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are satisfied, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you, beware, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today, lest when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses, and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold multiply, and all that you have multiplies, 
that your heart becomes proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there is no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint. In the wilderness he fed you manna which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, My power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. It shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you today that you shall surely perish like the nations of the Lord that the Lord makes to perish before you. So you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. Read that as if it was directed to you, for it is. The Lord said, you know, I give you heart, put you in places where it's hard to believe, difficult times, when it's hard to provide for yourself. That's not the norm. That's the glitch. I put you through wilderness experiences to see if you'll trust me when it's hard to trust me. Because the norm is, I want you to live in a land flowing with milk and honey, where the rocks are of iron, you dig copper out of the mountains, and you're as rich as you can possibly be. The way fundamentalists talk, is that the way we talk? The norm is... I want you to live in a, hand, a land flowing in with milk and honey. I want you to live in a place where all of your material needs and spiritual needs are satisfied. And if during the good times you fail to believe that I'm the one that gave you the power to make wealth, Put you in the wilderness again. So that you will remember. It's not your hand. That makes you that wealth. It is my hand. God says, I am the one that gives you the power to make wealth. What is wealth? God's blessing on our hard work, thrift, and Let's look at Proverbs 3. Turn to Proverbs 3. 
And let's read several verses here. Start with verse uh, 5 of Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with produce, will be filled with plenty. And your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. The Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father, the son in whom he delights. There you have Solomon teaching his son to be faithful. Don't forget the teaching of the Lord. Keep the Lord's commandments in your heart and in your life. Because if you do, if you continue to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not upon your own understanding, keep my commandments in your heart and in your life, verse 2, for length of days and years of life, they shall add to you. Want to live longer? in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not upon your own understanding. And in your heart and in your behavior and in all of your relationships. Obey him. You want to be healed from sicknesses? Don't go find you a healer on television. You want to be healed of all your diseases? Be healthier than you are now. Verse 7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing for your body. <coughs> and refreshment for your bones. Want to have wealth? Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. Tithe. What happens when you tithe? In the context of an obedient life. Verse 10. So your barns will be filled with plenty. And your vats will overflow with new wine. You'll be productive. But also, there'll be discipline. There'll be times in verse, like verse 11, when God will have to discipline you. Don't loathe his reproof. Don't think it's all going to be smooth and easy. And you float to heaven on flowery beds of ease. There's going to be hard times. There's going to be times that God does have to spank you and discipline you. 
that's not the entirety of life. Everybody looks at Job, and they say, here's Job, here's Job, I had a miserable life. This is the typical Christian life, to be miserable every day. Sad times, troublesome times. Well, if you say that about Job, that means you never really read the book of Job. Because what it says about Job is that all those chapters that talk about the days when Job's sons were uh, killed, when all of his wealth was uh, stolen, when he lost his health and he lost the sympathy of his wife and his life was miserable, that wasn't the norm for him. That was a glitch in his life. Before those days, it said that Job was the wealthiest man in his nation, as well as being the godliest man in his nation. And then in order to test him and to strengthen him and to prove to him that he can trust the love of God, God took all these things away from him for a period of time. And then after he learned all the lessons that he was supposed to learn, God gave them all back in the end of the book of Job. And he had more wealth in the end of his life than he had at the first. Now, what people will say to get out of that, well, that's Old Testament. Old Testament's uh, promises are material wealth and material gain. And so in the New Testament, it's spiritual. All the blessings that God gives us in the New Testament are spiritual. Not like in the Old Testament where all the blessings that God gave to faithful people were material. Profit, money, property, land. Well, let me say two things about that. First of all, remember the greatest promises in the Old Testament were all spiritual. There were material promises, but the greatest promises were all spiritual. I will be your God, and you'll be my people. That's as spiritual as you can get. And those who say, secondly, that the Old Testament is concerned with material blessings, like wealth and money and gold and silver, but the New Testament is not concerned with life uh, on this planet and with material prosperity, it's concerned with spiritual things. Not true. I want you to turn with me to First Timothy. And let's see what the New Testament says about the blessings of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. Read this very carefully. Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. 
We have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich, because they love money more than anything else, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Some, by longing for it, wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. So if in this life you're living for wealth, material prosperity, and that's the most important thing. How much money you have in your bank account? How big a profit you made to your investments? If that's the most important thing to you, it will ruin your life. And it shows that you love money more than anything else. So what's the uh, choice? Don't make money. Don't live for profits. Don't try to increase your bank account. Don't buy a bigger car. Is that what it says? No. It says, Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied with contentment. If you're content with whatever God gives you in this life, you're not only going to get godliness, you're going to get great gain. So the blessings of the New Testament, as over against the Old Testament, are not spiritual and the Old Testament material. The blessings of the covenant in the Old Testament are material and spiritual. And the blessings of the New Testament are material and spiritual. They, co they cover the whole of life, and not just a part of it. So you be content with what, gives, what God has given you. And God will bless you even more. So that's a little short lecture on wealth that you can get both out of the Old Testament and the New Testament. So let's go back to Genesis 26. There's one other point I want to make. Now, what happens to you when you have wealth? When you start to prosper, Bigger house, nicer car. What starts to happen? It says it right here. It says, that the people that lived around him, Isaac, became envious. Start to prosper. People see that you're prospering. People will be envious. 
Look in verse 13. And the man became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy, for he had possessions of flocks and herds and great household, so that the Philistines envied him. Envy is a very destructive and dangerous thing. It's the most powerful motive in the West. Most people, the motive for what they're voting for a candidate or a policy is envy. The driving force of most people in the West is envy. Envy is not the same thing as jealousy. Jealousy is to uh, want something that somebody else has but you don't have. Envy is to want what somebody else has that you don't have and you're going to see to it that they don't have it any longer either. Envy is the motive for arson. People burn down houses. Because if I can't have a house like yours, you're not going to have a house like that either. Envy is a destructive thing. And you show your envy particularly on uh, election day. Vote for a candidate. The liberal candidate knows how to manipulate you. And so the liberal candidate says, uh, you have more property and more money than other people. So it's only fair the more you make, the more you should be taxed. So you're going to be taxed more. The more you make, the more you're taxed. It's only fair. So who said it's only fair? Where in the world did they get that? Really what they're saying is the more you make, the more you should be punished for what you make. And that uh, IRS income tax is one of the most wicked and destructive to the family things that we do in this country. You make money. You make more money than other people. You should be punished because it's only fair for you to pay your equal your fair share. You ever ask Mr. Biden what a fair share is? What's a fair share that I owe everybody? So, other people, that, that's the thing in this culture. If God starts blessing you with material wealth, influence, with power, people around you will be very, very envious of you and will do destructive things against you. What did the men of, of Gerar, the Philistines, the friends of Abimelech, what did they do when they saw Isaac prospering? Plugged up all his wells 
this guy, if he's going to make more than we are, we're going to see to it he doesn't make any more. And we're going to plug up all his wells. And that's how the destructive envy is. If I can't have it, you don't get it. Watch your response to an envious culture. Faithfulness to God. Contentment with what God has given you. Thankfulness for what God has given you. And use what God has given you for the benefit of other men and women and for the glory of God and for the life of the church. So, what did Abraham do? I mean, Isaac, did Abraham take after these guys for plugging up his daddy's wells? Nope. It worked even harder. And uh, got the dirt out of the wells. So you can use them again. And then dug new wells so that everybody could benefit. So the people of Gerar opposed him, made it as difficult as they could for him to prosper. Wells were the valuable thing. I mean, you named your well. Have you ever named your well? You've named your dog, but have you, have you ever named your well? Wells are important things in the Middle East. Source of life. You got camels. You got donkeys. You got all these things. And so they were trying to end his life and end his productivity because they were envious of him. Isaac kept on working. Cleaned out all the wells of his father Abraham and then dug new ones. Shared them with his envious neighbors. Look at what it says here. Because there's a couple great points to be made. Verse 15, chapter 26. Now all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father, the Philistines stopped up by filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you're too powerful for us. Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar. Settled there. That's even farther away from Egypt. So here God used the envy of Abimelech to get Isaac closer to the promised land. Then Isaac dug again the wells of water which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the same names which his father had given them. And when Isaac's servants dug in the valley, but when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, This water is ours. So Isaac named the well Essek, because it means conflict. 
Then they dug another well. They quarreled over it. So he named it Sitna, which means uh, hostility. And he moved away from there and dug another well. And they didn't quarrel over it. So he named it Rehoboth. For he said, at last the Lord has made room for us. And we shall be fruitful of the land. Now Isaac is starting to act like a man of faith. This well, I'm not going to name hostility. I'm not going to name conflict. I'm going to name it Rehoboth. Rehoboth means in Hebrew, living room. Wide space. Confidence to believe that God's going to provide for me and give me the land that he promised. However envious and destructive my enemies may be. I'm going to look in faith. God's provision. Verse 23. Then he went up there from there to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your seed for the sake of my servant Abraham. So Isaac built an altar there, just like his father, and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. This is where we're going to live. Famine's not going to keep us out of this land. Abimelech's not going to keep us out of this land. Envious people aren't going to keep us out of this land. I'm building a well because this is where we're going to stay. God said, I'm giving you this land. And this is where we're going to live, and this is where we're going to worship God. Verse 26. Then Abimelech came to from Gerar with his advisor Abuzah and Phicol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. We've been completely wrong. So we said, Let there now be an oath between us, even between you and us. Let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now blessed of the Lord. Get envy. Get jealousy. We see who you are now. You are a powerful man. And it's because God is with you. So we're going to cut a covenant with you. We're going to make a deal. Don't harm us. You're superior to us in every way. Don't harm us. We're not going to harm you. Because God is with you. So what did these people do with Isaac? Verse 30. Then he made the feast. And they ate and drank. And in the morning they arose early and exchanged oaths. 
Then Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. See how this powerful man, this wealthy man, this rich man, this very rich man, this godly man, this man of faith, this man of faithfulness, is now feared and respected. It came about on the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, We have found water. So he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. But, whatever happened to Esau? Esau was 40 years old. He married Judith, the daughter of Beery the Hittite, Abesimoth, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And here he's marrying two Hittite wives that are completely pagan. And they brought grief. Last sentence, a heartbreaker. Your two brothers can't live in the same town. Cause the unwillingness of one brother to live in obedience to God. So, what's your responsibility? I'm through. What's your responsibility? Your responsibility and the responsibility of children is to clean out the old wells. The wells that your fathers have dug. The reformers the Protestants, the great theologians and preachers of the past, men whose books you've seen and read, read them again. Dig out the old wells again. Teach your children to love those books. Teach them to go back to those wells and drink out of them and find refreshment and life as you did. Teach them to love the religion and theology of their fathers so that your sons and daughters love the water from the old wells and love to drink from it and build their lives on that water. And then teach them also as they drink from the old wells, the men that God used for the past several hundred years, and bringing reformation to the world. As you read, go back to those old wells and drink from them again. Dig new ones. Look to the future. Name them Rehoboth. Be future-oriented. We're just not nostalgic. We just don't go back to the past. We go to the past so that we can find the strength and the direction to live in the future. Be future oriented. Always be building altars and drinking, building new wells so that you can draw from the old wells and draw from the new as well. Don't be stagnant. You don't want a well full of mosquito larvae, pond scum.
You want a, a well that's flowing with water. The old wells of the past flow with water. Drink from them. Be in love with them. Long for the taste of men like Calvin and Dabney and Matthew Henry. Teach your children to drink from those wells. That they can live for the future. Let us pray. We thank you, great God, for the wells that our fathers have dug. Thank you, Father, for what we have learned from them as we have sat at the feet of these giants of the faith. Now we pray that you would teach us to put that, that kind of love and faith in our children. They love the old wells that this culture has rejected. And may they be nourished upon them so that they will face the future with hope and with expectation, with faith, not worrying about the envy of this day and the large number of people inside and outside the church that have rejected the faith. As they dig new wells that they'll name them Rehoboth. They'll say, Lord, you're giving us living room. This land is our land. However hard it may be for us to see. Face the future with confident assurance that this world belongs to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.